You're listening to the Journey to Launch podcast, investing and talking about bankruptcy to financial freedom with Courtney, the Ivy Investor. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, 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 journeyers. Welcome to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. I hope you've been enjoying immensely the content over the past few weeks, months, and years, right? This is the second year or we're going into the third year that the Journey to Launch podcast has been consistently putting out episodes every Wednesday. And if you listened last week, I put out a bonus episode where I spoke to Veronique who is a member of the Launch Club community. I'm actually going to be, hint, hint, putting on another Journeyer kind of profile slash Launch Club member interview this Friday. So look out for that. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you do not miss it. And I really wanted to let you know, right? So last week I mentioned that I'm going to be doing a free class and it's here. So the free class will be held on August 15th. And if you want to grab your seat, this is a virtual class. So you can log on from your phone, from the internet, anywhere you have internet, basically. And so if you want to do that, go to journeytolaunch.com slash free class to save your seat. Once again, it's free. I'm so excited to be able to bring you some more information about financial independence and all the steps that you need to take to get there. So go to journeytolaunch.com slash free class to get that information. On the episode today, I am talking to Courtney, the Ivy investor. Courtney has an amazing story. I was really intrigued by Courtney. We follow each other online. She's actually been in the launch club. So she actually taught a course in the launch club. So what I do is I have expert speakers come in the launch club on a monthly basis to talk about and teach something that they're an expert at in addition to all the other programming that we have on a monthly basis. And Courtney came in and spoke to us about investing and retirement investing, like really understanding that. And as you'll hear in the interview, Courtney has an extensive background. She's an attorney. She's a former stockbroker and investment advisor with over 15 years of experience in the financial services industry. I heard in passing. So this is, you know, it's funny. People always wonder like how I pick my guests and how I choose to have people on the show. And sometimes it's just like little things I hear someone say and I'm like, I need to have them on and talk about this. So one thing Courtney had mentioned as we were talking and getting to know each other is that she helped her mom get out of bankruptcy and her mom is now retired and basically very financially stable. And I was like, okay, Courtney, you have to come on the show and talk about that because I have so many journeyers who they might have made mistakes in the past, or maybe they feel that they're starting too late. And here you were able to help your mom come out of such a like situation where some people can't get out of. So I wanted her to come talk about that and share her knowledge on investing with us. So I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. If you want the episode show notes for this, this is episode 110. Go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 110. Once again, I think you're going to really like this. So sit back, take some notes if you have to, and enjoy. Okay, journeyers, I have a special treat for you. I have a special guest, Courtney Richardson from the Ivy Investor. Hey, Courtney. Hey. 
And we are um, like IG buddies, finance like buddies online. And I, have we met in person? No, not. I, or at FinCon last year? Probably think, like, FinCon, right? Quickly. Like in yeah. FinCon is kind of like there's so many people. And sometimes it's just like it's happening it's like so fast. I'm just like, oh, my gosh. But you um, definitely are like a supporter of the podcast. I always see you like shouting out like the episodes and sharing it with your community. And you're also just, you know, your stuff when it comes to investing. You also came into the launch club and taught a class. So that was awesome when you did that. And so I definitely wanted to have you on the show because when we started to get to know each other, like going back and forth, one, like your expertise and what your knowledge of investing, I feel like more people should hear about that. And then you had told me a story in passing, like you, you didn't even make it a big deal. And I was like, oh my gosh, we need to get you on the show to talk about this. But you talked about your mom going through bankruptcy and you helped her. And then like the amazing things that um, she's done since bankruptcy. So all that to say, this is going to be a special treat during here. So buckle up. We're in um, for some good information. So first, Courtney, let me know or tell us how you got into investing. That's like your thing, right? That's what you do. That's what you teach people. Yes. I've been teaching that for, oh my gosh, it doesn't feel like five years, but it's been five years. So um, how did I get started? It's always the funny story. So, I mean, imagine this. I feel like I'm like one of the golden girls. I'm like, imagine this, Sicily, you know, whatever. Imagine this, Pittsburgh, I'm unemployed. I just graduated school and I was looking pretty much for something to do. And more importantly, my parents were looking for something for me to do because I was going to go straight to law school. That was my thought when I was going to undergrad. I was like, oh, I'm going to get this degree in philosophy. I'm going to get these business classes under me. You know, I'm going to be this, uh, this high powered attorney. And the Pitt's program is like second in the nation in philosophy. At the time, I didn't really know this. And the program was so intense. I was like, oh, no, I need a break. You know, so I was like, okay, if I need a break, what am I going to do with a philosophy degree? Nothing. (laughs) There's not much out there. So, uh, you know, I put my resume out there. Like I did um, some work in college at Fleet Credit Cards, which is now like fast forward Bank of America. Mm -hmm. Um, Did some work there. um, And then I worked at Bloomingdale's part part time in sales because I liked sales. And I got this call like from Monster. And they said, hey, do you want to be a financial advisor? And I'm like, you know, all of these non-job offers I have right out here, sure, I'll like interview. So I interviewed with American Express Financial Advisors. They're now a Ameriprise. And, you know, I ended up getting my Series 7, which is a stockbroker's license, and my Series 66, which allows me to, or allowed me at the time, to charge for my investment advice. Now, mind you, I'm 20, 21 years old. I don't know anything about anything. Yeah. So, and then we had to make, you know, in that environment, I had to make a hundred calls a day and I didn't want to do that. And I really hated it. And I told my parents about it. I was like, I tried it. I gave it, you know, the good old school try. I hate this, please help. And they were like, listen, my dad was like, I'll cover your rent um, while you kind of figure out what you're going to do, but you can't just like sit in the house. So I got a part-time job at Sam's Club, which is owned by Walmart. So I got this part-time job and they said, hey, when I'm signing up to um, to work there, they said, hey, you know, we have this stock purchase program. Would you like to sign up? And I was like, yeah, you know, like I, I knew about, like I was a stockbroker, but I had never up to this point. And now I've been a stockbroker for maybe about eight months or so, never purchased a stock for myself. Isn't that crazy? Right, <laughs> so right. I said, All right, well, yeah, I'll sign up. So I signed up my very first stock was Walmart and it was taken out of my paycheck. And just to put it in context, I think I was buying it about $38 a share. 
So you just know where Walmart is now. And so, where's Walmart? Let's get it. Like, I'm pretty sure it's like a hundred some odd dollars a share. Wow. Um, but let me just double check. So the symbol is WMT. And unfortunately, I know all, like all the popular stocks or popular companies. I definitely it's one ten thirty two. It closed today. Mm-hmm. So that was my first stock. And that was in 2004. So that's like my beginnings as a stockbroker investing, kind of like there was a lag. And a lot of people feel like as soon as you are introduced to stock, that's when you just jump in. You're like, I know about stock. I'm going to jump in. And you're just like, no, there's like more to it. It's kind of like as soon as you're introduced to Spanish or another type of language, you don't, you're not automatically fluent. You kind of, it takes some time to get your ear adjusted to Spanish, let alone, you know, being able to speak the first word, let alone a sentence, let alone a paragraph in reading in Spanish. So it takes some time. So I like to encourage people like, don't expect this to happen overnight, but when it happens, it's amazing. But it's something that takes time. It's a process. Needless to say, that was like my experience. I ended up getting into banking, ended up getting recruited by Merrill Lynch. So I had the awesome opportunity to be a 401k specialist. So I learned the ins and outs of 401k. I learned that before, pre-crash. Uh, so I was doing Merrill Lynch and then I ended up getting into high net worth advising. So my average client was $3 million, had a lot of fun with that, lots of steak dinners, lots of great times. And then the bottom fell out of the market. And we kind of knew it was coming. Um, I was working on a project in February of 08. And I remember there was this thing called auction rate securities and the market failed. Now I'm not going to get into specifics, but we knew normally the big banks, or I should say the big investment um, houses would clear the market. Nobody had any money available to clear the market. So that's kind of how you, we start to know like, yeah, there's really a big problem here. It was to say in 2000, um, Merrill Lynch was purchased by Bank of America. 2009, I got laid off and then I went to law school and I, well, I lived in the Philippines for a month. Another story, another day. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> lived in the Philippines, had a ball, don't even know why I came back. But I ended up going to law school, did that for three years. Then I did oil and gas. And then from oil and gas, from there, I, I had a lot of my friends while I was working at the uh, at huge law firm, really, really prestigious law firm. Um, I had a, I was bored out of my mind, but I had a lot of my friends asking me about retirement. They were about to transition in their lives. They were getting married. They were having kids. They were like, I need college planning help. I'm about to leave my job. Do I roll it over? Do I cash it out? I was like, hey, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. And what I noticed is that people had a huge gap in their knowledge. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I can tell you what to do. But the bigger issue is that we have a whole bunch of information that hasn't been covered for you to be able to make an educated decision about what's best for you. So I had to spend, so what I started to do is I started blogging. I said, Let's, let me give you the basics of what you need to know. And then we can have a bigger conversation about specifics for you. So that's how the IB Investor started. It started in like 2014. And I just started giving people basic information that wasn't really provided. As you know, there's really not a lot of basic information out there. And I feel like, especially when it comes to people of color, we're always being sold something. So we're getting information or education through a sales lens, as opposed to kind of like a basic lens. So if I give you a car that has three wheels, you're going to say, uh, player, that's missing a wheel. That's right. no good. But I get the same equivalent in, in the finance space. A lot of times we don't have anything to measure it against. So we don't know. Right. Wow. You just have an extensive background that just led you to where you are today. I mean, I have so many questions for you and I know my <laughs> listeners do too. So 
I want to get into some technical stuff. So we're definitely going to get into some like technical questions about 401ks and after-tax investing versus pre-tax and how someone should evaluate the options in a 401k. Mm-hmm. We're going to get into that. But I do want to touch upon your personal story first because sure. I think, you know, there's always a personal, like I think everyone in the personal finance space specifically, and then obviously everyone has a money story. And then usually I'm always interested to hear like how you how you handle your own money, right? Because unlike a lot of people, you do have a great background to, you know, knowing investing, understanding investing. So when you were like going to school, um, did you have a lot of debt? Uh, or did you have any money humps to get over yourself as you were on your journey? Ha. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I am licensed um, in West Virginia and Pennsylvania to practice law. When you go through the practice, um, getting ready to practice law, you have to go through the bar exam, which everybody knows about. But there's another section called character and fitness. So basically, do you have the character to practice the bar? One of the things that they looked at is your finances. Well, I was very irresponsible during law school. Um, And not even really during law school. When I was laid off, like I got a lot of money and I did not spend it wisely. So when I went into law school, I was kind of like, oh, whatever, you know, whatever. And I had my last two years of law school paid for. And I had a stipend. I just was not really paying attention to anything. So I let kind of credit cards go to ways. I was kind of like, oh, well, I'll just pay those later. Did all of this. Now, lo and behold, chickens come home to roost. And West Virginia, I just had explained things. And they were like, whatever. Pennsylvania was like, oh, no, we're not going to allow you to practice until you take care of these issues. So needless to say, I almost did not get admitted to practice law in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania because of my credit. Wow. And at that point, so during that process, they made me um, pay off all of my credit cards. But I was already starting on that process when I did get employed, even before Pennsylvania like made me do it. So I was kind mm-hmm. of already beginning the process. But um, I used the snowball method. I was kind of like, all right, we'll just deal with this one first. We'll deal with this one and we'll deal with that one. And do you remember how much you had, like how much debt that was? Um, it was like maybe 7,500. Like it wasn't okay. a lot, mm-hmm. but for a college a law student with no money, it was kind of like, yeah. So that was kind of like what I had to take care of. So I did pay it off. Like I paid it off maybe in a couple of months because I had so- to, and I had the extra money. So was um, it, I, it seems like you definitely were um, motivated to pay it off as quickly as possible because you had this kind of, it was looming over you to get rid of it. But what, I mean, you know, it seems your mindset shifted, but like, what are the action steps that you took to pay it off? Were you just like, all right, I'm going to cut out doing X, Y, Z, or you literally had the money. You just had to manage it and just use it to pay off debt. Oh, I had the money. And I had to manage it. Like I, I, okay. in that particular part of my life, and I actually have like other stuff that happened after that. But during that part of my life, I had the money. I just had to like pay it. I had to be responsible. So I had to take ownership of what I was doing and what I wasn't doing. So that was a really big aspect. And I read um, Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover. Now, there's a lot of things in that book that I don't necessarily agree with, but I think the way he kind of handles the emergency fund and the way that he handles debt. I think are phenomenal. I don't think there's anything out there better to kind of really simplify how to get started in the party. So I really use that to get started. But I also kind of said to myself, oh, I never want to be here again. But funny story, ended up there again. So <laughs> oh, talk to me. Talk so, to me. Right. Just... <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that's the crazy stuff. So fast forward, I ended up leaving the job that I was working at. I mean, part of the reason why I started the blog is that I was currently unhappy. I love writing. I'm a very good writer. And I was being told every single day, oh, you're not a good writer. Your writing is not good enough. And I was like, oh, player, hold on. 
how is that even possible? Like, I know who I am, what I do, blah, blah, blah. Like, you can say a lot of things about me, but my writing is not one of them. So again, I said, let me just take myself out of this toxic situation. So I ended up getting, going back to school and getting my LLM. But at that point, I hadn't transitioned back to having less money. So LLM, LLM, just for people who don't know, that's also like a legal degree. Yeah. So it's a, a degree above the doctor of jurisprudence or a juris doctor. So it's a specialization in law. So I have a specialization in law and tax. That is my specialization. Now I've heard, is that where someone can do an LLM instead of getting a law degree? Is there, no. is that an option? No, I, because I, I feel like I've heard before, like instead of becoming a lawyer, there's something else you can do. It's, I mean, you're not, a, you're not considered a lawyer, but you can still do something with law. I don't know. Maybe I'm, uh, there's a, there's a couple of different places. Like there's some states that don't require you to go to a law school. They just require um, require you to do apprenticeship. So like Kim Kardashian is doing apprenticeship in California because California allows that. And there's also in the financial space and the tax space, there's three types of people that can represent you in front of the IRS tax court. So that's a CPA, an attorney, and an enrolled agent. So those are the three types of people that can do that. But beyond that, that's pretty much it. I mean, there's some people that can be paralegals. Right. You're limited. You can't really represent people. You can do the legal work, but not represent. Okay. And so sorry to derail, but I just brought that up because I know people sometimes have interest in law and maybe they don't want to go that way and, and end up with a expensive like debt or burden with that law degree, but there's other options. Okay. So let's get back into it. You got your LLM and then what happened? So I got my, like, I started the program. I was just all over the place because I feel like you have to be very careful about monitoring your space. And when you allow people to kind of speak that negativity in your life, it it kind of really messes with you. So I was kind of like, yeah, I'm getting this LLM, but should I be getting it? Should I be doing this? And I felt comfortable in doing it because I was like, oh, well, my last two years of law school were paid for. So I had this extra room in in the student loan debt. I'm like, and you're kind of and like, as you look back on it, you're like, how did you have extra room? No, <laughs> no, you just had what you had. So really funny situations. I ended up, um, I started it, then I stopped it. And then I started working again. I was just all over the place. So, but still my salary from being a, um, basically an AMLAW, AMLAW 100, basically a top law firm salary, I never really readjusted my life. So guess what happens when you don't readjust your life and really kind of take ownership? You get into more debt. So here I am again with debt. Now my debt has come down maybe about $10,000 since I kind of really gotten back serious about dealing with what I was dealing with. I mean, I finished my LLM in 2017. I graduated in 18 because there's only one graduation a year. Um, I did all of that. And I'm like still kind of getting myself back together. Like, okay. And I teach people how to invest. And it's like, come on, Courtney, you can do a little bit better of like, getting rid of this debt. So I really kind of made a focused energy to say, okay, we're going to snowball it again because that's what works. But again, being very conscious and um, accountable for kind of the excess spending that I was doing because not because I, because I didn't say to myself, Courtney, your, your salary is decreased. You need to decrease what you're doing. I just was like, oh, I'll just put it on credit. Like, so you have, I have to remind myself, you don't fill in your gaps with credit. So right. I have those conversations now, but I know it because I've lived through it. So I say that all the time now. I'm like, don't fill in your gas with credit. Like, I think credit is a great thing, but it's a tool. It's nothing more than just a tool. Right. It shouldn't be um, the bridge to get you things. You leverage it to build wealth. And I mean, like, again, I am a fan of credit when mm-hmm. you can be in complete control over it, when you can leverage it. 
when you uh, can you know, buy real estate with it, but a good real estate investment or travel hack, you know, there are numerous ways in which it works. Okay, I hope you are enjoying today's episode, but let me just take a quick, quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor, Gusto. You witnessed my journey to uplevel my life, my finances, and now you're actually watching me uplevel my business. I went from being an employee to being self-employed, and the next step is becoming an employer. Hiring people to not only help me bring my vision to life, but give them opportunities and outlets to help them support themselves, their families, and their own dreams. And so I'm always looking for tools and ways in which I can effectively run my business. So if you have a business or you know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear lots of hats. And some of those hats are totally great, but some like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, are not so great. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll taxes and HR actually easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing benefits and simple management tools all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Hello. So for my journeyer business owners, now you can get three months free when you run your first payroll. Try a demo and see it for yourself at gusto.com slash journey. Once again, that's gusto.com slash journey for three months free. All right, let's get back into this episode. I always find it interesting when people are in like a certain field and like they know what they're talking about and they're helping other people. But then at the same time, their own like house is just like not as pristine or in order. But I think that happens for like a lot of people. And I don't know if it's because, you know, I find that maybe when you're focusing, when you have a lot to do, when you're ambitious, maybe this is just like, uh, excuse at this point, because I find that even me, right, before I got into Journey to Launch full time, I had more time and more focus on my own personal finances. Like I had more time for it. And now I, you know, I still monitor and I still do what I have to do and it's still going fine. But my focus is not that anymore. It's almost just like, so you have, it's very easy to slip <laughs> because you're focused on everyone else's success and what they're doing and, you know, but and other things and what you're supposed to be like implementing in your own life. You said it so well. It's kind of like, yeah, you're dealing with everybody else's stuff. And you're like, oh, but we learn, you know, we learn this from an early age. When you start getting on the plane, they say, what? Put your mask on first before you yep. take care of others. And I think it's so important that I keep remembering that. But I wanted to share, like, I like trying to be very transparent with my journey and whatever I do, is that there's a couple of deals that I had to walk away from because like I was over leveraged. I was like, oh, I got to walk away from this deal. And those are kind of like those sticky points that you're just like, oh, this is not going to happen again. When you say deals, what do you mean? So real estate deals. So okay. um, I would, so my day job, you know, I, I'm a real estate attorney, real estate tax attorney. So there's a lot of things that kind of come across my desk um, and not necessarily in that position, but just kind of people that I talk to and they're like, hey, I have this opportunity or, hey, I have this thing going on. And I'm kind of like, oh, okay. And then next thing I know, you know, I can't make it work. You know, there's a lot of deals that, hey, had I had I had a little bit more free credit or I had I really had a good stockpile of cash or something to make a deal work. So, for example, maybe I can get financing on the improve like on the improvement or what would you say the property, the building. But I needed to do a significant amount of work on the inside and I probably needed a line of credit to get it started. Well, you know, I'm over leveraged, so I don't right. want to add to the pot. 
if I can't really deal with what I have right going on. And when you're doing flips, you have to be very mindful that the flip budget that you have going on is not necessarily the flip budget on the other end. Yeah. <laughs> and they take a lot longer. And a lot of people come in, they're like, yeah, I'm going to flip this in three months. And then six months later, we're still here. Right. So do you have currently own real estate uh, for investing? No, not for investing. Cause I okay. So currently I'm actually doing a rehab on my house that I own. My parents gave me their house. So I'm doing a rehab on that. Okay. All right. So speaking of parents, let's go into the story about your mom, if you care to share, because what really stopped me and made me feel like I wanted to tell the story and you to talk about your mom going through bankruptcy and all that you helped and what she's done now is because I feel like there's so many people who are going through that, you know, maybe their finances are a mess and they hear about this idea of financial independence. They listen to the podcast or they have family members that are in that situation and they kind of feel like, is there hope for me? So I want them to know there is hope. So can we talk about what happened with your mom? Yes. I kind of laugh about it because my mom, that whole situation kind of grew along with me. So my mom filed for bankruptcy, um, I guess it was around 2002, 2001. So um, she was in a chapter 13 bankruptcy, which is a reorganization. So you're basically, your creditors get together and say, this is what we'll take. And they kind of split it up and you have a monthly payment. But one of the biggest things about chapter 13 is that you have the monthly payment to basically kind of make your creditors whole or whatever they agreed to, but you have to keep current in your current bills. So that's kind of how her 13 was set up. Um, A lot of people, and I, I like to share this about 13s, a lot of people do not finish the 13 at all. When you say not finished, like they can't keep up with the payments. Correct. So what happens after what they that happens? When you're done 13, you're discharged. Um, I believe they just basically everything gets turned back on. Basically, like it didn't happen. It happened, but it didn't happen. So you have to basically go back to paying whatever was going on because when you have when you're in bankruptcy, there's a stay. So your creditors can't call you like they have to go through the bankruptcy trustee. There's like you pretty much like think about it as like a wall. Right. Like you have like the bankruptcy wall. They can't come to see you, whatever. But if that wall kind of comes that da- like comes down because not because you're done, but because you didn't follow in compliance with your bankruptcy um, plan, they basically come back for you. Mm. So and then also on the other side is that you're limited to the amount of times you can file for bankruptcy, too. Like there's a lot more to it. Like back in the I would say back in the day. But before the bankruptcy laws were a little bit more lenient and a lo- little bit more loosey goosey and they got a little they started cracking down on it. So they require I believe financial um, counseling before you even get involved. There's a lot of different different steps ahead of it that you have to do. Right. So she filed for bankruptcy and now she has a plan, right? That she now has to pay up that pay off that debt. It makes me think growing up, was money something discussed in your house? Did you feel like you had a good financial footing or how did that work? I don't know. And I always kind of say people like, what happened? So um, I grew up, I mean, pretty solid middle-class household. My mom's a nurse. My dad um, was working. He worked a couple of different jobs. Um, We actually, I was born um, outside of New York because my dad was an executive for McDonald's. So I was like North Jersey type. And then we moved back. So I'm from Philly. So we moved back to Philly once my dad left McDonald's. He got into like some other jobs, but he's actually a teacher by like degree. So, but I share all of that to say like, you know, pretty, very good jobs. You know, we, we lived in a really nice house. And then in 2000 and I'm sorry, 2000, ugh, 1994, my parents split up, my parents divorced. And then I think that's where things went very I wouldn't say they went left, but that's pretty much what caused my mother's bankruptcy. 
Mm. So they ended up spending, my mom is a saver. My dad is a spender. And they are very much the same still to this day. Um, And that being said is that that really caused a lot of problems for my mother because they just could not seem to get on on the same page with the money. And I mean, I don't know what the real cause of it, but I knew that was a big deal for both of them, that they weren't on the same page with money. That being said is that my mom ended up falling into a depression, I want to say sometime when I was in high school. So I remember when I was in high school, the lights were cut off. You know, it was just kind of like, this is not working. And my grandmother is amazing because my grandmother lives three to three blocks down the street. So that worked out really well because my, my, my mom was just like, listen, I can't really do much with you. Um, not in, in a bad way, but just, you know, if you don't have any lights, I don't know what we're going to do. So right. I, I went to, you know, stay with my grandmother and she was such a great, she's um, great, helpful support just to kind of fill in the gaps. But again, that gives you an idea of kind of, but then at the same time, you know, my dad's still like chilling, living life, whatever, because he's a spender. So, um, you know, at the age of 17, um, I had a car, I had a cell phone. And then when my mom started working, you know, we, I had three-way calling and caller ID. Like there was no reason on earth that I had all of those things. So right. it's kind of like on one side, like it's like a pendulum swing. You're like one side, you know, we're without lights one day. And then the next day, you know, I have a car, I have a cell phone, like in 99, a car, mm-hmm. a cell phone, all these things that I didn't really need. So it kind of created this really interesting space growing up. And I always kind of felt like, like when I say like, I don't know how I was or felt about money, but there was always something going on. Like I always felt like, well, maybe we don't have enough. Maybe we don't have enough, but then like you kind of see all this excess. Right. So it, it was, it was a really interesting space, but I think my mom being a saver really helped her when we had to get it together for, when she was in bankruptcy. So she's in bankruptcy how did she work her way out of that situation? And I know you said that after that, she's done some great things. So let's talk about that. With her bankruptcy, she said to me in 2005, she's like, I want to retire in 10 years. And I was like, "Uh, this is before or after the bankruptcy? This is during the bankruptcy. During, okay. Because a bankruptcy program is about five years. So um, she, I think she got in about, about 2002. She got in about 2002. She was like, yeah, I want to retire in 10 years. And I was like, um, and at this point she was working a job, but her job, she was actually on short-term disability because she was like working too much because again, she has to keep up with the bankruptcy plan. So she had to pay a $1,200 mortgage. She had an $800 plus bankruptcy payment. So $2,000 every single month is going out before anything else. So she was like working a lot. So she ended up having, I guess she, cause I wasn't living here. I was living in Pittsburgh. So she was really like overwhelmed and tired. So she ended up going on sick leave. But while she was on sick leave, her unit closed. So she's a nurse, unit closed. So now she's on sick leave. Now she's on unemployment. So I come home. And at this point, I said, you know what? It's time for me to come home. So I come home and we really had to like assess what was going on. But she says to me during this assessment, well, I want to retire in 10 years. I can retire in 10 years. I was like, wait a second. Don't you know that you're bankrupt without a job? without a working car. Like, don't you know, we have all these problems. Right. Are we not understanding the problems? And she was like, so like pretty much she took the position like, so I'm going to retire in 10 years. And I was like, uh, um, we just cleared. And she had a, a small 401k that she wasn't even contributing to. It was contributed to on her behalf by her employer. So there's about $10,000 and we had to take that out to get her caught up in bankruptcy and a mortgage. Hmm. And I'm like, uh, do you know what just happened? You know, you're right. trying to like 
kind of bring her down to earth to say this isn't quite going to work. I, I don't know. And, you know, I'm in my early 20s and she's just like, kind of like, okay, well, whatever, make it work. And I'm like, I'm, a, I'm two years out of being a, fi- like, I just be- became a financial advisor. Like I'm, I'm working at a bank. I'm like, um, I don't know. And in my head, I'm going, I don't even think I have the skill set to do this. So I look at her social security statement. I was like, okay, I think we can do this. I said, well, mommy, because there's a there was a big gap or a big jump between age 65 and age 66 in terms of how much she was going to be getting every month. And I said, um, all right, you want to do this. I need you to give me 66. Wait, 60 cents? 66 in terms of her year. 66. So, okay, wait, you got to give her until she's 66 years old. Okay. So she said 65. And I said, right. no, 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 give me 66. Okay. And she said, okay, 66 it is. So we worked. So the first thing that we took care of is that, like I said, we had to assess what was going on. I had to see what everything was. And like I said, she was behind in her bankruptcy. She was behind in her mortgage. She's behind all over the place. So we were almost in a place where they were saying, oh yeah, we're going to kick you out of the plan. And I was like, uh, so I said, well, and I was looking, like, I kind of felt like I was looking, I was like looking everywhere. I was like, where am I going to find this money? And then she remember she was let go because her unit closed. We get a statement in the mail and it says $10,000. And I said, I can do something with that. Now, what was that from? That was from her 401k. It was her 401k. Oh, okay. All right. It was the quarterly statement. And I said, I can do something with this. So I said, she's not getting, remember, she wasn't getting her full payment because she was unemployed. She was on sick, short-term disability, but then she was unemployed. So she was never really getting her full salary. So I said, we can plan for her taxes because remember, she's going to have to pay 20%. She's going to have 20% withheld off top if she's taking the money out of her 401k, but she's also going to be liable for taxes, anything that the 20% didn't cover. But when I ran through her taxes real quick, I said, I think that 20% is going to be just right based on everything else. And she wasn't going to be subject to the 10% penalty because there's a rule in the IRS code that if you retire or leave work at 55, you're not going to be subject to the 10% penalty. Mm. So I knew that from being a financial advisor. And I said, okay, I think we can make this work. So I got her caught up in the bankruptcy plan, got her caught up in her mortgage. And I said, okay. And they start with that $8,000, right? Because that $10,000, she got 20% to taxes. $8,000 now that you have, now you you get current on everything. Okay. Correct. We're there. So I was like, okay. So we have, so I said, now we're, now we're cooking with oil because at least we're at ground zero. Like before we were in a hole, but now we're at zero. So I was like, okay, this is, this is okay. And then she ended up getting a job. So I was like, okay, now we're back moving, we're back moving forward. So we start paying everything, um, paying her bankruptcy on time. And then I said, okay, now that we are paying your bankruptcy on time, you're paying your mortgage on time. Our first goal is getting you done with bankruptcy. The next year, so that came home in 05, 2006, we were done. We were completely caught up. She was done. Was that the scheduled end date or she was paying more? Right. Awesome. So so she was serious. She was was basically, you guys got really serious. Like any extra money you were throwing at the bankruptcy Mm -hmm. payments to get rid of that fast. Correct. Okay. So, I mean, and we didn't have to do any extra money on bankruptcy. I just think that there's something built in there that allows you a little bit more time, I guess, mm-hmm. because her attorney commented to me, she said, I've never had somebody file to actually finish their bankruptcy plan that early. Yeah. Okay. I was shocked about that. Okay. Wow. All right. So she's out of bankruptcy. You're doing good. Like, how does she then like retire, <laughs> you know, within that time frame that you had for her? So we focused on the house next. By focusing on the house, 
I said, okay, well now we have to get rid of this house and not get rid of it, but get rid of the house then. But I also wanted her to focus on her retirement. And a lot of people think like I have to take care of all my debt before I can start investing. But because we had such a short time period, we couldn't do it that way. So we were going to have to at least, I said, mom, I'm going to at least put you up to your match. So the match that she was getting from her employer when she was doing her bankruptcy payment. So even though like, so she was, but she's very frugal. So that helped a lot. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have to do a lot of stretching, but I said, listen, while we're dealing with bankruptcy, we'll deal with bankruptcy. And then after that, then we'll be able to contribute a lot more to retirement and paying off the house. That worked out pretty well. So once we got done with bankruptcy, then we started contributing a lot more to retirement. And we weren't able to quite max out until she paid off from her house. So the thing was, we said bankruptcy first, then we said the house, and then retirement was kind of like catching everything else. So we consistently invested while she was in bankruptcy. We consistently invested as we were paying down the house, but as it was kind of like a crescendo, like as, as, you know, one thing went down, we increased another pocket. So, and one of the things that I did with her house is that we, I was all, I printed out her amortization schedule because I wanted to make sure that we were any payments we were making that were extra were going to principal. Because initially when I started paying, making overpayments, I saw that they, her principal balance wasn't going down. And I was like, what's up with this? So I call up and I say, hey, you know, we're making extra payments, but they're not being applied. And they said, oh, no, no, they're being held in suspense until you get a full payment. That's when it's going to like a full payment. That's when we moved over. And I was like, uh, yeah, no, that's not going to work. So mm-hmm. um, what is our better suggestion? And the woman said, she said, your best suggestion is, is that you write a check and put principal only in the memo. So that's what I started to do. So I started to make I was making her payments online her full mortgage payment. But then I started doing principal only checks. So okay. I was like, okay. So principal only, principal only. So every single month we would put more money to the principal. It sounds like she was really funneling and I, you know, I don't know what around her, her income was, but a lot of her income to now paying off the mortgage and investing. So you said it already said that she was frugal, but you were also helping her manage that, like the, make the payments for her. And I'm just like amazed. Okay. So we're going forward. She's now paying things off. Well, she paid the mortgage off. She's investing and maxing out. So she maxes out her retirement stuff at some point. So after we got done with the house, so the house was due to be paid off in 2019. Yeah, 2019. Yeah. <laughs> it's this year. Yeah. The house was due to be paid off in 2000. Wow, that's crazy. I'm sorry. I, that just, just came to me. So mm-hmm. the house was due to be paid off in 2019 this year. And we ended up paying it off in 2012. Hmm. So with all the principal payments, we were able to do that. So from 2012, to 2016, that's when we, that's when I had her max out her account. And when maxing out the account, I think it was like 16,000 was the most she can contribute or maybe it was 20. Cause she was at this point, she's over the age of 50. So she was able to contribute the catch up, catch up. Mm-hmm. So we had the catch up, we had a regular payment, you know, we had a lot of things going on that we were contributing and we had to make sure one of the things when you're maxing out, you can actually get ahead of, you can get ahead of your match. So if I max out maybe in November, but your match is being contributed every single pay. You're going to lose out on not getting your full match because their match shuts off when you shut off in your program. Okay. So I knew that from when I was working at Merrill. So I said, okay, I need to figure out a way to make sure that I'm getting, you know, she's contributing all year. So she gets the full benefit of the match. Right. Right. So your mom, like 
she seemed to have a good income to be able to support these changes. So she was about, I want to say she was 97, I think one, one year, a couple of years, she's maybe at 102. So 100. Right. So she's making a good, she's making a good income. Um, and it sounds like it was a complete priority and mindset shift. It sounds like to me, like anyone that's looking to really get some goals done in a short amount of time, like you need to make drastic changes. So I would assume that because she was so frugal, her saving and investing rate was probably very high. Do you know if it was like that like, or not? <laughs> so her, so before, so my mom was like very much a cash person. You would just randomly find like dollars everywhere. Just like, shouldn't this be somewhere, you know? Yeah. But she never was a big saver. You know, she would have a good amount in her bank account, her checking, but she was never a saving that she would have a separate savings account. When her 401k, like I said, she was never contributing to it. Her employer contributed to it on her behalf. So she was never really exercising the options and the um, the things that she had available at her disposal until I said, hey, um, if we're going to do this, these are the things that we have to do. And so what I did is I allocated her 401k. So and then she also had the benefit of the wildest stock market ride ever. So we right. investing through the bottom, which was in 2009. And we were, remember, we were tossing money in in 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. So she's getting the benefit of this raging bull market. Mm, so there okay. was a lot of things that she was doing right, but then she was also doing it at the right time. And sometimes a lot of people are like, how can I time the market? I'm like, you just can't. But right. Sometimes you just have to, because think of it, if she stopped investing and she said, you know, in 2008 or nine, just like, you know, the market's down, I'm going to stop investing you know, she would have missed out on that whole opportunity on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Fast forward. She, she reached her goal, right? You, she's retired. She's retired. Wow. So how, I mean, and we're going to, like, I feel like I keep going back to the story because, or wanting to like understand it more because I feel like this part is important people to understand that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Like your mom went through bankruptcy. She, although she was a saver, she wasn't in a, really in an investor or I mean, she had, thank God she had you to guide her, right? But there is a light redemption. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. So she was able to retire and now she's living off of her investments and social security. Like, how's that look? We don't do a lot. So basically her social security keeps her pretty much chilling. Like she chills hard. Because her expenses are so low, right? She doesn't have the mortgage. Right. And so she's already frugal, you said, so she can live off really just, okay, it's great. So we don't really do a lot of pull. We did do a pull to pay property taxes because that's a big uh, chunk to take out in terms of like kind of, we could have set money aside, but she was just like, why? You know, just take it out of my account. And that's pretty much all that we've done. Now we did do some improvements to the house and that wasn't a huge, a lot, but it was, it was some, um, I think we, we had to redo the roof. The roof was 30,000. But other than that, she's kind of like, man, whatever, you know, her, awesome. her car is paid for. So she actually takes my old cars. Mm -hmm. So I've given her all my old cars. So they're paid off. This car that I have, I have a Mercedes now. I'm getting rid of it as soon as I possibly can. (laughs) (laughs) I love driving it, but it's a very expensive car to maintain. Yep. And Mm -hmm. so when I'm focusing, when, like I said, I've had some shifts for myself this year and I've been thinking about this for the last maybe two years or so. So when I had some shifts for myself, I was like, uh, you know, I'm not a big spender a lot. I mean, like I've got my spending under control. I'm like, I was like, but I had this pole in a bucket. I was like, it's that daggone car. <laughs> so, right, right. So, yeah. So that's what, um, but so this one, she's not going to get, so I don't know what we're going to do, but, um, we'll probably just work it out, but she's not, she hasn't, she actually is, um, she has cancer. 
So she was just diagnosed last July. So almost about a year. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So, but she's, she's rocking and rolling. Okay. She, she's, done, she's actually, um, she's done her chemo. She's on a, like a study. So, but she's doing really well on the study. She's kind of like really just retired again. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Shout out to your mom. Tell her I said, hello. She's a journeyer. <laughs> Tell her I said, hi, even though she doesn't know she's a journeyer. So I want to get into some like investing tips and know-hows for people listening because you you know a lot. And so I want to transfer some of that knowledge and help people out here. So let's just say now someone is looking at their options in their 401k. How can they determine what's a good investment and when a fee is too high? Are there some standard kind of like check marks they should go through? Yeah. So 401ks are, so the biggest thing that I like to look at with 401ks is I want it to be fast, easy, and cheap. I want your retirement to be fast, easy, and cheap. And what I mean by that is fast. I don't want you deliberating, trying to create like a Van Gogh in your 401k. (laughs) Like that's not the place to do it. But also in terms of being cheap, because the biggest thing is a lot of people, when they start getting into what we call actively managed funds, they tend to be expensive. So when you're thinking about actively managed fund, I want you to think about a baker. So we have our box cake, which is our index. And then we have like our fancy thing, which is our baker, our wedding cake. And a lot of times is that we know when we're looking at a wedding cake, it's going to be expensive, right? And we're expecting this high quality thing. But again, I want it to be fast, easy, and cheap. I'm not looking for necessarily high quality. I'm looking for high performance that's cheap. So I'm looking for the cake taste um, at, you know, the box cake price. So I'm looking at my indexes. So the indexes are where I want people to really focus on. Anytime that you have an index in your 401k or any of your retirement accounts, 403b um, and your 457s, the TSP, which is a thrift savings plan, that's one of their plans are very, it's very vanilla, but they're super cheap. I wish everybody had one, but Mm -hmm. you're here nor there, but you're going to look for indexes and the fees I want you to look at in terms of indexes, I want them to be under 0.35% is what I want for an index in a 401k. But sometimes I would like to see it well cheaper than that. 0.2% is actually really where I want to see an index. But because of certain 401k plans, the way their mutual funds are set up, they're set up on tiers. So if you don't have a very big 401k plan, it may be a little bit more expensive to maintain and you'll see it in your fees there. Right, right. I love that analogy with the box cake and off the shelf, that's going to be cheaper versus like the more elaborate cake. And that's how you can look at like when you're investing the options that you have. Okay. What do you think or what's the advice for people? Because I get the access a lot when it comes to where they should invest first. So 401k or pre-tax retirement accounts versus a Roth IRA and after-tax retirement account. So in the early retirement space, there are different thought processes all over, right? But for the early retirees or people in the space, they and they have they have the money to, they expect that these years are their higher earning years. So therefore, they want to do more pre-tax uh, investing and max that out because whenever they reach early retirement or that's going to be their lower earning years. So let's just say tax rates, we don't know what they're going to be, but they remain the same. They'll get taxed at a lower rate when they take that money out. But then at the same point, I've heard and I know that like maybe at a certain income level, it makes sense to do a Roth IRA first if at your current income level and then go back to a 401k. I think it's different for everyone. But if you just have some guidance or thoughts around that, I'd love to hear them. So you asked two questions. So the first question I think is the easier question, which is kind of where do you start investing? Kind of do you start with your pre- your retirement plan or your employment plan? And I always say yes. Always start there. Like that's your low hanging fruit. 
I feel like when we're doing this whole financial um, kind of getting our finances right and we're looking to kind of take it to the next level, we're looking to do like gymnastic somersaults and kind of make it super difficult. And I want people to know there is low hanging fruit in the finance world and that low hanging fruit is your employer account. So just kind of reach out and touch it, you know, and, right. and use that as your first starting place. Especially if you have a match, right? Just like at least go to the match. At least go to the match. A lot of people wonder like, oh, well, if I don't have a match, should I contribute? But to your point about if you're doing pre-tax contributions, I prefer people if you're saying, hey, because it's reducing your um, annual adjusted gross income. So it's going to reduce your income, um, your taxable income. And the bigger thing is, is that especially a lot of people end up getting to the point where they're starting to lose deduct. They're like, they don't have any place to take a deduction. They're like, yeah. I don't have a kid or I have kids, but I don't have a house. Or I may not have as many deductions as I, I would like. Especially since the tax changes, right? So, right. Mm-hmm. so it's like, well, where can I find this? Oh, you can find it like right under your nose in your 401k. You can reduce your adjusted gross income by making your pre-tax contributions. So that's another, it's kind of like a twofer. Like I get a chance to reduce my taxable income and I get a chance to save for retirement. So I think that's a great thing. In terms of the Roth, the closer you are to retirement, the more I want you contributing pre-tax. The further away from retirement you are, I want you to contributing to a Roth. Um, I would, I mean, perfect world. I want you to contribute to both. Yep. So you kind of mix it up, like, you know, <laughs> you mix it up in retirement. So you're not being taxed, but you're not also losing the benefit of the pre-tax deduction early on in your life. All right. So then I also want to talk about because people. I think, you know, the concept, uh, hopefully I'm changing that with this platform, but the concept of investing in retirement accounts is not as fun or sexy as like when people say, oh, I want to invest, right? Like I want to open up a broker's account and do what you did, like get some shares of Walmart or something else like that seems more fun and tangible for people versus like investing in like a retirement account. It's not as fun. And I feel like, or it's not viewed the same way. I know you like, you know, stock um, investing, right? And, you know, for good reason, right? Like you can, there's like a lot of benefits to it. And if you have that kind of energy and time, like for me, I always say, I just like index funds. It's simple. It's like, I'm a lazy investor. I don't have the time. Like, I just want to set it and kind of just forget it. So what are your thoughts on that? Because, you know, for people who do want to also stock invest, what's some advice for them to get started? And do you still recommend that they, they, they just take care of that retirement investing first? So yes, I like people to invest in their retirement first. Like I said, it's like just the easiest thing to do because it's already set up. Usually it's already set up for you. So in terms of investing, index investing versus stock market investing. I like both. So for retirement, I really like people just to be an index just to make life easier. But in your taxable accounts, I want people to really kind of learn how to pick stocks. And it's not something that you do all the time, but where you get started is I tell people, I like to see people do what they know, what they use and kind of what they're interested in. If you kind of use that formula, I think you can really get started and do something really great. But also being a nosy investor means you're going to be a good investor. And you really like to your point about being lazy is like you have to do some research. Like you can't just say, you know, hey, I like this company. It's kind of like dating. You know, you're like, hey, I see this, you know, attractive girl. or I see this attractive guy. I'm going to talk to them. You know, not everybody you talk to that you think is attractive, you're going to date. Not everybody that you date that you are you going to marry. So it's kind of like that whole process. So not every stock that you see that you think is attractive is going to kind of make it through the, the mix up. 
there's a lot of companies, especially I, I love using the cannabis space because cannabis is just easy. There's a lot of companies out there, but a lot of them are not that great. Like when you really kind of pull back the, you know, the top, you're like, what are you guys doing up there? What are you guys doing? So again, it's, it's about like looking, you know, at the, the first part, then kind of doing that little back background. So it's about the things that you like that you use. Like I know I spend an exorbitant amount of time at Target and Starbucks and, you know, Target has Starbucks in it. Like this is crazy. But again, you know, um, I like to go visit, you know, I've gone to, tar- I go to Target all the, all the time. Like I got stuck in Dallas. I ended up at a Target, you know, cause I didn't, I needed stuff. So I was like, I know I can go to a Target, but I think when you understand a brand on that level, then you should probably consider investing in them. Um, same thing with, with Starbucks. Like I know if I'm like looking, if I need coffee and I need jolt of caffeine, I know I'm going to go find a Starbucks because I know that's what they have. And I know that at least for the most part, I'm going to have a pleasant experience there. So it's kind of like understanding that, like, I know I use these things, but then, like I said, the things that you're interested in, there's a lot of things that kind of catch my eye. And I end up just because I'm nosy. I'm like, Oh, let me find out more on Google. Let me find out more. We'll find out what companies are doing the things that you're interested in. There's so many companies out there. There's like, you know, I think 3000, like there's a Russell 3000. So there's 3000 companies out there for you to even look at to kind of um, see if you want to invest in them. So when someone now is saying, all right, I taking care of some retirement investing and they're maybe they're a great in the great point where they're maxing that out, right? They're maxing out their retirement accounts. Awesome. And now they're like, all right, I want to do some, some taxable investing. What's a good first step? Um, how easy is it to get started? Well, I think just to get started, I probably would open like a Robinhood account. Robinhood's so easy. You just open it up, boom, you're started. And then from there, it's like, okay, like you make a list of the top 10 things that you you use on a weekly basis. Just starting there, kind of research it. Like, I mean, if you live in Pennsylvania, a lot of people are like, I go to Wawa every day. And I'm like, well, Wawa's not publicly traded. So we can move on from there. But, um, you know, a lot of things that you may use, like even, especially in the medical field, I think the medical field is probably like the easiest place ever because there's so many things that they come across every day in terms of the pharmaceutical industry, in terms of medical devices, and they know what is really, really good. And they know my mom's in the medical field, so this helps. Um, you know, you know what's really, really good and you know what's not so good. So that help happens for them all, for people in the medical field all the time. So again, just really getting into that. So you open your Robinhood account, you do a little bit of research. You're like, hey, I see this kind of thing that came across my desk that I thought was really cool. Or I use this needle that was crap. Or I use this needle that was amazing. So I'm like, I use this needle. What is it made by? Oh, it's made by BD. Well, let me look up BD. And then you find out about BD. Oh, BD's publicly traded. Now I can go see if I can buy BD. So it's kind of like, just it's about being very, it's kind of taking the curiosity to the next level about being an investor. It's taking your everyday curiosity beyond just everyday curiosity. It's kind of like making money off of curiosity. So stock market investing is making money off of your curiosity. Uh, I love that perspective. Okay, Courtney, like I, like I said, guys, she knows her stuff. Um, wonderful story. And let everyone know where they can find you. So you can find me on my website. So www.theivyinvestor.com. So that's T-H-E-I-V-Y investor. I'm also on Instagram as the Ivy investor. I'm on Facebook as the IV investor and I'm on Twitter, but I don't tweet that much um, as the IV investor. So pretty much everywhere I can be found. Right. And I will link all of your contact in the episode show notes. Thanks so much again, Courtney, for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. How was that? Did you enjoy that with Courtney? I hope you did because I did. And 
I really love hearing stories, like real stories about people, like especially when they come from a financial setback and how they overcome that. And so I hope you got some real legit tips and action steps for you to use on your journey. As I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, I'm holding a free class on August 15th. You can sign up. It's a virtual class. So meaning you can log in wherever you have internet. So you're from your phone, your computer, your tablet, wherever. Just go to journeytolaunch.com slash free class to find out more about that. Also, if you want the episode show notes for this episode, go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 109. All right, journeyers, until next week, keep on journeying. Journeying.